Today's financials episode of Industry Focus was recorded on September 21st. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is John Maxfield, one of our top financial analysts at The Motley Fool. How's it going, John? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Gabby. Awesome. I am definitely excited to have you on the show. because today we thought we'd take a little bit of a risk. You know, normally we talk about the mechanics of investing or news stories that are relevant to investing. And today we wanted to try to talk about a concept that's core to good investing, but is something that can be applied to all aspects of your life. Today we are going to talk about critical thinking. Um, this can get a little bit weedsy, but I think we're going to make it really interesting, and you should definitely stick with us. So let's dive right in because we have a lot of content to cover. Um, let's let's start with um, with some kind of background, right? Why we decided to do this in the first place? People are bad at making decisions. Uh, John and I were talking before the show started about uh, something called the Dahlberg studies. Do you want to expound on that, John? Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, I mean, critical thinking really g- impacts all aspects of our life. But what's so interesting about investing is that you can actually study the quantifiable impact of how good your thought process is. And, and that's what the Dauber study, among other studies, allows you to do. So what the Dauber study does is it compares how it uses a proxy for the, in, an individual investor's performance, and it compares it to the broader market, the S&P 500. And what they have found over the years, they've been doing this study for multiple decades, is that the typical investor underperforms the S&P 500 by about half. So if the S&P 500 over the last couple decades has has returned 8%, the average investor has returned 4%. And what they have found is that the reason for this all goes down, it all boils down to the way that investors make decisions. Right. And the problem with the way a lot of investors make decisions is that they're making decisions based on emotions rather than rational evidence-based, thought-out ideas. Um, and I, this is something that Warren Buffett harps on, basically, all the time. Right, John? Yeah, I mean, the human brain, what scientists have found, and behavioral, science, behavioral finance has really become a, a, a popular study uh, over the past couple of decades as kind of the efficient market hypothesis has, has kind of uh, kind of left the scene. And, and what they have found is that the human brain is designed to make emotional decisions. And this goes all the way back to when we were cavemen and cavewomen, right? I mean, if you were scared of something, you didn't sit down and analyze whether it was rational to be scared of, say, I don't know, like what 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 what, what ran, ran around back then, like saber-toothed like lions, is that <laughs> or whatever are, they were. Those tigers. are saber-toothed tigers. <laughs> yeah, saber-toothed tigers, whatever they were, right? Um, you, you know, you you acted instinctively. You were scared and you immediately ran and that whole process you know, it, that didn't just stop back when we were cavemen it still impacts how the human brain works today correct it's the, it's your fight or flight response um and not just that but humans in general um because we have to make snap judgments or our ancestors had to make snap judgments in order to keep themselves alive we tend to make a lot of shortcuts in our thinking so for example, um, I was at the barn the other day and I wasn't really paying attention, but like out of the peripheral of my eye, 
I see something sliding across the ground. And without even thinking about it, I jumped up, jumped back in the stall with the horse, and the horse is staring at me like I'm crazy. And I look down, and it's just a hose that someone's dragging farther down the hallway. You know, I thought it was a snake. Um, but my mind took the, the circumstances and thought, green, slidey thing on ground, snake. You know, it didn't think, oh, you know, it could be a hose. It could be any number of things. It was that instinctual um, taking very little information fitting it into a into a mold that already exists and spitting something out without, you know, critically evaluating what was going on. And like John said, I was a that was a great survival mechanism back in the day, but not a great way to invest. Yeah, and, and that, that's a such 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 great example because it, it really boils down to what behavior you know, you're talking about shortcuts. In kind of the behavioral finance literature, they call these behavioral biases. And so there's things like um, authority bias, right? So, you know, let's say you read an article about something by somebody you consider to be authority. Well, as opposed to going out and then doing your own independent research, you'll just rely on them because you think that they're authority. Well, there could be a problem in, in their thought process. But because humans, you know, we can't sit down and analyze every single thing to death, that, every decision that we have in our life. So you've got to make shortcuts. And that's fine. You know, 80% of the time, that's going to be fine because you're just deciding, you know, whether to stop at a red light, you know, you know, who should go first at, you know, a four-way stop, whatever it is. Those are instinctive. You don't have to, you don't have to analyze those. But there are certain decisions where you have to slow down your process, think things through logically, and come to a more reasoned opinion. And that is really where that critical thinking is. And when you do that, you kind of it, it, you are in a better position to avoid the behavioral biases or shortcuts that could otherwise lead to a bad decision. Right. So we've talked a lot about critical thinking <laughs> without actually ever defining what critical thinking is, um, which is something that when you think critically, you should always do, define your terms. So let's talk a little bit about what critical thinking actually is. Um, in my view, critical thinking is an active process where you come up with a question, gather information, and then use it to reach a conclusion. Um, this is a, what I'm about to say is a definition that I got off the internet, but one that I wholly agree with. Critical thinking should be clear, rational, open-minded, and informed by evidence. And this part is my own. Critical thinking is an entirely, is inherently self-reflective process. Um, I also think, that, although this isn't mentioned in any of the definitions, critical thinking can be difficult. It can be a difficult thing, um, and it's something that you have to actively pursue. Um, so that's why we decided to kind of do this show today, both to 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 kind of just talk about critical thinking in general, and also kind of think how we can use it in our investing lives. Um, so, John, let's move on to the next portion of our show. Um, why? What, what can critical thinkers do? You know, what would a critical thinker look like to you? So, I would say that, you know, you pointed out really the, the key quality of critical thinking, and that is thinking rationally. And when you, when you think about thinking rationally, there's so many different elements to that, right? But it is dedicating yourself to following logic. It is dedicating yourself to trying to find, you know, there's a famous book called The, the, the Signal and the Noise, you know, where you're, where you're, you know, you have so much information that you have to figure out what to use to make a decision. And, and so it's critical thinking is also all about 
picking the sources of your, you know, appropriate sources for your information and then fitting them into your rational thought process. Um, so that's kind of how, how I would think of critical thinking. It's very similar, probably exactly the same way that you do, Gabby. Yeah. Um, I do have this quote that I'm, I'm going to read to you guys. It's uh, by uh, Dr. Paul and Dr. Elder. Um, it says, critical thinking is, in short, self-directed, self-disciplined, self-monitored, and self-correcting. It requires rigorous standards of excellence and mindful command of their use. It entails effective communication and problem-solving abilities and a commitment to overcoming our native egocentrism and sociocentrism. And I think that the thing, when I'm unpacking that quote, um, that stands out most to me is how many times they say self. Um, and this is because critical thinkers are independent thinkers who do their own analysis. This gets to what you were talking about earlier with the authority bias. You know, they're not relying on other people to spoon feed them what they should think. Um, but the other thing that comes out in this quote is that critical thinkers are people who can admit when they're wrong and accept information that challenges their worldview. You know, like they don't <laughs> they don't try and massage the sources to try and to try and get everything to support what they already think. They're willing to accept new information and, and change their minds. Um, yeah, and, and, and kind of to that point, Gabby, you know, when you're thinking about taking that new information in, it, it's, it's really, you have to not only take the right information in but, and exclude the, the bad information, but also process it appropriately, right? So I, I'm a lawyer, I don't practice, I write for the Motley Fool. Um, but one of the things that you learn in law school and one of the things that underlies the, the, the legal profession, which when you think about what law school is and what law is, it, it really is just, it's just a study of logic and an application of logic and persuasion and things like that. And, and what it's grounded in is this idea of a hierarchy of precedent. Right, so everything you read doesn't deserve the same amount of authority, right? So in, in, the, in, in the legal context, the Supreme Court gets more authority than appellate courts, which get more authority than district courts, which get more authority than state courts, and then, then you have the hierarchy within state courts. So it's not only what information you're using, but it's how you organize it and process it that really underlies, that really differentiates uh, somebody like Warren Buffett, who has made, you know, massive amounts of money really by just thinking extremely rationally um, relative to to these investors who underperform the who have a tendency to underperform the market yes and this definitely gets into our our next kind of topic on the issue which is um, how to get started with critical thinking um, and the first most important most basic step is ask a question um, and it, it can't just be, any old question, and you can't just ask it any old way, right? Um, the, there's this uh, there's this philosopher, a pragmatist philosopher, um, whose name was John Dewey, and he said, "A problem well put is half solved," um, and that that means that when you ask a question, it should be very very clear what you're asking. Otherwise, you'll have no idea when you find the answer. Yeah, I mean, and you have to be identifying the issue and asking the right question is so important. And you know how I, I like to think about it. Gabby, is that you know if you if you shoot a rocket right and you shoot it you know if it's you know tilted two inches one way well you may not be able to see that difference when the rocket is on on the launch pad but as the further and further it goes into space the more off the original trajectory that original error can make it go so identifying the appropriate question to your point I mean it's just such a critical 
critical piece of this. Yes. Um, and ways, ways to know that you're asking a good question is that your question needs to be specific. If it's too broad, it sometimes becomes very difficult to find data to, to help you understand what you're looking for. And honestly, most really big questions are just a whole set of smaller questions that pile up together to create this like huge, overwhelming question that you're trying to answer. So if you can, start with the smaller questions and answer all of those and build and build and build until you can answer a big question. And the other thing that I think is really important to realize is that it's okay to restate your question. You know, like maybe once you start doing your research, you realize that the question you started out with isn't actually the one that you were trying to answer. And that's okay. The whole, the whole, if there's one thing you take away from this podcast is that it is really, really important to ask questions of everything, including yourself. Yeah. And, and you know, when your, your point about being precise, when you said that, it, it reminded me of this research by a guy named Phil Tetlock, uh, who studies forecasting and, and, and the difference between people who are really good at forecasting and the people who are really bad at forecasting. And one of the things that he found, and he's written a number of books on, he's really the leading authority on forecasting in the United States, maybe even in the world. One of the things that he found in his research were that the people who were better at and more and produced more be- accurate forecasts were more precise. So, like in, in all aspects of their thinking, which and so makes the example, sense. Yeah, it makes right. That makes total sense. And, and so the example, the tangible example that he gave in his most recent book, Super Forecasting, is that people, you know, when you're asked a question like, "Oh, Gabby, like, you know, what's the percentage possibility that, you know, what I mean, uh, you know, interest rates will be two percent next year?" And let's say, you know, somebody gives ninety percent, uh, another person gives eighty percent, but then there's other people who are like, "Oh, well, seventy-one percent, or seventy-seven percent, or eighty-six percent." You know, the more precise those estimates are, and the more precise you think, there is a direct correlation to the quality of the, of the output of your decision-making process. Yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, precision is really, really important. Precision of, precision of language, precision of thought is really important when you're formulating your question, when you're doing your research, which brings me to, to, to actually doing your research. So the first step of doing your research, of gathering all your information in order to make your reasoned conclusion is you have to pick your sources. And you have to pick good sources. And by this, I mean you have to question your sources and data. You know, don't take anything for granted. And so, for example, say you are on Facebook and you run across a meme or a picture. And it's, you know, one of the presidential candidates with some white text superimposed. That is not a good source. Right. That is that anyone could have written that. In fact, um, I remember a couple years back, someone printed pictures of Taylor Swift and put quotes from Mein Kampf on top of it. And people were like, oh, she's so original and unique. Um, Those pictures that you find on the Internet can be from anywhere. Good sources would be places like um, a university or a government study. You know, um, uh, you want sources that are that have been examined by multiple other people who are experts in the field. Yeah, and, and you know, the one thing I would add to that is that you don't just want sources that confirm what you already believe, right? I mean, what's the point in doing a whole bunch of research if you're just adding more substance to what you already think or know? And so what that means is that you, you really need 
to eschew dogma, to, to eschew ideology, and in that place, you know, replace it with pragmatism. And let me give you a really timely example of, of how this kind of works and how this kind of plays into the decision-making process. You know, so we're in the middle of a pretty contentious presidential election, and one of the things that, that researchers has, have found in the past is that in certain areas, like politics, when a person either hears an opinion that is inconsistent with theirs or reads it, in the political context, the part of your brain that is responsible for critical thinking, that really deep logical thought process, actually shuts down. So they put people into whatever those, are, those brain scans are, and then they would, you know, ask them questions or give them information that was either consistent or inconsistent with what they already did, already believed. And any time an inconsistent uh, fact came up, their brain shut down. So you need to be cognizant of that bias, that confirmation bias that is a part of your brain. And you, when you're gathering evidence and when you're processing evidence, you need to cognizantly con or consciously uh, try to combat that. Yes. Um, you know, you, you have to be open to information that contradicts your feelings, you know, your expectations and your worldview. Um, but in order to do this at all, you need to be able to acknowledge any bias you might hold. Um, and it might be as simple as like, you know, growing up, your dad told you that uh, X brand of cars was terrible. You know, and you you never even examined that belief, but you grew up your entire life thinking that. But you go to buy a car and you run across a lot of articles saying like, you know, X, X brand car is actually great. You know, you have to be able to, to let go of that thing that's so deeply in, ingrained in your brain that you're willing to change your mind. Um, and that's hard. That's really hard. That's something that we spent a lot of time talking about um, when I was getting my anthropology degree is... Um, acknowledging that you have assumptions, cataloging them, and then challenging each and every one of them. Um, <laughs> so you might be thinking to yourself, this process that you just described, you know, finding all your data and then challenging all of your assumptions, that sounds like it's really hard and it sounds like it's going to take a long time. And yeah, sometimes it takes a really, really long time. You know, sometimes it might take your entire life to answer a question. And that's okay. <laughs> that's just part. That's just part of critical thought. Um, so, say you've asked your question and you've gathered your data. You know now it's time to write your conclusion. Um, and everyone kind of does this in different ways. Um, for me, I really find that argument mapping helps me a lot. So, like you make diagrams. It's like flowcharts. If you're really interested, you can go online and Google it. But it's like a visual representation of the information that you have. Um, but if you have, I think, your thesis statement clearly written, you know, your question clearly written in your thesis, uh, your supporting evidence, and then any dissenting evidence, I think that it'll help you come to a logical conclusion, having it all written out in front of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's being disciplined, you know, writing everything out, putting it in front of you, so then you can actually really analyze it. Let me kind of bring up one other point here, and this is something I, I picked up in, in, in Professor Tetlock's books as well. His most recent one, again, I mentioned it earlier, Super Forecasting. It's fantastic. It's kind of got a cheesy title, but it's actually an excellent read. And what he found is that, so Phil, let me give you a little bit of background. So he has conducted, he's overseen these studies 
where he will go out and enlist a whole bunch of people to try to make predictions. And there was one t study in which he did this for the defense uh, uh, agencies. And the, the question was that they put a whole bunch of different university teams together of forecasters. And the question was, could those forecast, would some of them be much better than others? And could that be repeated on a consistent basis so that you could eliminate luck from that equation? And Tetlock's team outperformed the other teams by something like 20 or 30% in terms of the accuracy of their forecast in, um, in, 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 that, in that whole process. And so then he breaks down in this book, you know, these are the different things that we found that people were, that made it possible to make better decisions that turned out to be more accurate in terms of forecasts looking forward. And this is, this, the one thing that he pointed out above all else is what he calls perpetual beta. And this is kind of like, again, it's, it's kind of sounds like one of those like kind of like cheesy business school books topics, but I think there's really some substance to it. So let me, let me just read a selection from his book. He says, the strongest predictor of rising into the ranks of super, super forecasters is perpetual beta. The degree to which one is committed to belief updating and self-improvement. So really, if there's anything above all the other things that is important here, it is that commitment to getting better every day, whether that's picking better sources every day, whether that's thinking more logically every day, that is the foundation upon which great decisions are made on a systematic basis. Absolutely. That was, that was a really, that was a really good, um, uh, quote that you pulled there. Um, I think that, that that actually kind of gets to what the, the, the other thing I was going to say is that when you make your conclusions, you want to make sure that your conclusions are really clear. And if you can't express them clearly, like Professor Tetlock apparently can, um, he can, he, his, his um, book is very well written. Um, if you can't expo express your conclusion clearly, then there's probably an error somewhere along the line of your reasoning, or there's a concept that you don't 100% understand. Um, and you want to go back and examine that. If possible, you want your conclusion to be so clear that you can explain it to your five-year-old child. That's how clear you want to understand the reasoning that led you to your conclusion. Um, I, think, I think that one of the most important things that you should take away from this podcast, besides question everything, is critical thinking takes practice. You know, like you, you aren't good at it from day one. And, you know, even if you're really good at it in some areas, maybe you're not so good at it in others. But with a mindful approach to it, you can improve yourself and your critical thinking skills. Yeah, you can absolutely improve. And that, I, I know I keep coming back to Tetlock's book, but I mean, it's really right on point. I mean, he talks about that. I mean, that, that constant improvement, that practice makes perfect. I, I think I'm not a huge sports metaphor fan but uh, <laughs> the, quarterback of this, <laughs> the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks he has this 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 great saying it's um, uh, preparation is is preparation creates separation right and so the more you do this the better you get at it and you just you know you can build on that and, and, and let me throw in you know one final point about this and that is that anytime you're going to make a decision there's always the possibility that you're going to be wrong. 
And you, you have to factor that in to the decision-making process. And again, we like love Warren Buffett, right? The Motley Fool. I mean, like, how can you not like love and respect that guy? I mean, he's amazing. But he thinks about this, the term that he uses to describe this is, is the margin of safety. And so what he's talking about there is that, look, like, maybe you think that the sun will come up tomorrow. Maybe, well, that's not a good example because we all know the sun's going to come up tomorrow. But maybe you think the stock is going to go up, you know, in, in, in five years. Maybe, you, you know, by maybe a 60% chance it's going to go up. Well, there's also a 40% chance that it goes down. So you have to factor that into your thought process. And that's why, you know, like when you're buying stocks, that's why buying them for cheap prices is so important because then it, it reduces the downside and it, the pr probability that it will go down as opposed to the probability that it will go up. You mean it reduces the, the potential fallout from you being wrong, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah, I probably kind of mangled that. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, no. I just wanted to be 100% that I was clear in what you were saying. Um, and so I asked a question, dear listeners. Um, <laughs> Good critical <so>, thinking. <laughs> so kind of in conclusion, you know, maybe you think this is all bull****, and that's okay. As long as you have good, well-thought-out reasons for thinking that this podcast is no good. You know, this whole episode is a celebration of independent thinking. Um, and, you know, Maxfield and I, we're flawed individuals. You know, we don't, we don't think we're the ultimate experts on critical thinking. It's just something that we both think about a lot and we try to incorporate into our lives. Um, and we were hoping to kind of do this show to create a starting point to encourage you to get out there and do your own thinking. Um, and, you know, question our thinking, too. This, that's literally the whole point of this show. You know, we want you to ask good questions of yourselves and of us. So thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the show. Uh, I'm really interested to see if we get a lot of emails, angry emails or, or happy emails. Uh, I, I will find out when I get back from vacation. So it'll be like a whole treasure trove of emails i guess or none that's the other option right maybe you guys all listen to this and you're like oh, this is so crazy that i can't even email her about it um so just to wrap up as we usually do uh people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and the molly fool may have recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear Contact us at industryfocusatfool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. And thank you to Austin Morgan for listening to Maxfield and I ramble on so much in the last two weeks. You're awesome. You're um, awesome, Austin. <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for joining us. Everyone have a great week.